morning is a friend of mine, Dr. Joy Moore. Uh, Justin and I, when we were in seminary, uh, Asbury Seminary together, Dr. Moore was one of our favorite uh, professors and preachers that we got to sit under during our time there. And uh, recently, she's moved just down the road uh, to become a teacher at Duke Divinity School as well. And see, here's the, here's the beautiful thing about the kingdom, right? <laughs> the kingdom rises above our deepest rivalries. Is that not true? You're right. The things that divide us, the kingdom uses to unite us. It's a beautiful thing. All right, cool. Um, but she's going to be our guest preacher this morning, and it is it's going to be wonderful. We are really excited about this. Um, Dr. Moore is a professor of preaching at Duke Divinity, as well as the associate dean for black church studies and church relations. And um, one of our, our just she has left an impression on us. Um, the, the Holy Spirit is on her and has anointed her and gifted her and called her um, for the preaching and the teaching of God's word. And I'm excited about her um, sharing that with us this morning. So, Dr. Moore, welcome. Thank you. I am grateful to be here. I've always wanted to be in the back of a theater when nobody was here. And um, I just feel like I should have some popcorn. But after Jeremy told me how old the popcorn is, I may never have popcorn in a theater again. (laughs) Uh, Am I on here? Okay, good, good. I, um, I want to share with you this morning some thoughts I have about marks of identity. And um, uh, what I want to talk to you today is about being healed. And so that last song was, was most appropriately. Um, I want to I talk a little bit about our identity and the fact that for Christians or for people in the world, our identity has been stolen. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about a couple of old stories Uh, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament that you are vaguely familiar with, but I hope you can hear in a fresh way uh, this morning. Um, I just want to begin by saying what I mean when I say our identities have been stolen. And by that, I mean mean that um, we have a problem because we don't know how to read. And I I know that that that's probably a weird thing for you to expect a professor to say in between two uh, university towns. But um, I, I, I too, have that little white cord that comes out of my ear that where I no longer listen to an entire album. Oh, wait a minute. You guys don't know what albums are. Um, You know, when people have their little selected songs on iTunes, they actually come in a collection. There, There are actually other songs that that particular artist has written. But I never listen to everything that they write anymore because I just listen to my favorite one. I upload it to my iPod, and that's the only one that I listen to. I don't even know they have other songs. I mean, this weekend, Whitney Houston has more songs than I Want to Love Somebody. I mean, I didn't know that. No, (laughs) I didn't know that. But we've, we've gotten into the place where what we do is we only listen to the one or two things that are our favorites, and we're no longer shaped by something larger. Um, we have gotten into uh, just being a different generation. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little older than Matt and Jeremy, which means I'm a little older than some of you. And, well, I just noticed you guys are different. Um, I, and by that, I mean that um, you're not different simply because of the way that you multitask, have portable handheld devices, provide continuous access to nearly instantaneous streams of global news, entertainment, gaming, gaming and random opinions of your 2,157 closest friends on Facebook. But you're a generation who sees the world differently. 
And to be fair, it's not your fault. You are who we've taught you to be. You've been taught to see the world differently. From the moment you woke up in your cribs and looked at the walls beautifully decorated in state colors, and I'm really glad that Matt made it clear that um, you guys are UNC. I'm actually from Michigan for a while, and um, I, I still bleed Spartan green. But I'm up the road a little bit. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm turning into a darker blue fan. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to be able to go home safely. <laughs> uh, but from the moment that you wake up and look at the colorful pictures, courtesy of Disney, Spielberg, and Pixar, your imaginations have begun an intensive education process to shape you into healthy, wealthy, and wise citizens of the globe. And in a way, that's what our world has done to steal our identity, to cause us to forget that we have been created in the image of the divine a holy God, a great God, a matchless God. And because we forget that we've been given that divine birthmark, we try so hard to be like everybody else. And that's our problem. Because being like everybody else, we forgot the story that we are a part of. That's our problem. We speak all the right words, but we don't know who we are. And in some ways, the text I want to share with you today is about someone who was outside of that circle of who he was supposed to be. But before I begin this, I want to remind you that Christian scripture is not really about us. It provides an ordered account of God's activity of setting things right in this world, even though we keep messing them up. And if God hasn't given up on setting this world right, and on claiming us as his, then maybe we can face the difficulties of this moment without fear, knowing that always God has us. If the world we live in is to be changed, the church has to change. So I want to tell you a story, a story that narrates you back into God's story. It's a story you're vaguely familiar with, and that vague memory is your problem. But what it talks about today is healing. Healing because so much is in need of healing in this world. If you're like me, you watch the U.S. news commentators, and they're promoted as no, no, they promote what is noteworthy in the world, unrest in the Persian Gulf area, allegations of sexual assault against high-ranking officials, wars and rumors of wars, famine, flood, earthquakes, hurricanes, economic collapse, social unrest, adverse employment practices, mistreatment of the elderly, incest, bribery, forced labor, divorce, disease, domestic violence, increased child sacrifices, adultery, and multiple sex partners. I'm almost entertained the idea that someone has hacked into the CNN teleprompters and uploaded something from the prophets of ancient Israel. If you know the story, you'll recognize recognize that these situations, this brokenness, this wrong story is not new. Ever since Adam and Eve ate themselves out of house and home, we've been living in a broken reality, a distorted worldview. And so we tell these stories 
that have been passed down from ancient people of God so that the present people of God can make a change in the world so that the world might know it has hope. So I ask you to pray with me that you might hear from God's word through my words today. Will you eavesdrop as I speak to the one who has written our lives? Holy God, let these words I say And every thought that is held here in this room be acceptable in your sight. For, Lord, you are our rock, our redeemer. Amen. From the Old Testament, 2 Kings, a commander of the army, chapter 5, Naaman. He was king of Aram, a great man and in high favor with his majesty, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Aramans were one of the, on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and, his, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And the king of Aram said, go then, and I will send along a letter, excuse me, excuse me. She said this to um, um, uh, the wife of of Naaman. And so Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel has said. And the king of Aram said, go then, And I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, uh, ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant, Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to give life and death? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. He said, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me. Then he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came out with his horses, his chariots. He halted at the entrance of Elijah's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored. You shall be clean. And he went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. And he would wave his hands over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are there not Abina and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned. He went away in a rage. But his servants approached him and said, Father, If the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you have not done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? So he went down, immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored, and like the flesh of a young boy, 
He was clean. There's another story from the New Testament. A story of Jesus from Mark in the first chapter, beginning with verse 40. A man with leprosy came to Jesus, begged him on his knees, If you are willing, I can be clean. And filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man, I am willing. He said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest. Offer the sacrifices of Moses command for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But instead, he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. And yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This morning, I want to talk to you on the idea of our marks of identity. We are healed. So as I think of this king, I hate technology when it doesn't work. So where's that story? There we go. As I said, I want to tell you this story. I hope you could hear it for the first time. For then you will sit on the edge of your seat as you would as if there were a movie playing on this screen. And you would allow this story to captivate your imagination. It would mesmerize you to know that the God who healed in the past, healed in Jesus' time, heals today. It's not my telling that makes this story exciting. It's not the fact that it's old. It's the fact that it is still going on. It's a story that isn't something that you can upload as an app or download as a program or connect to with an Xbox console. You must allow this story to reshape the way that you think, the way that you see the world. So don't misunderstand me. This isn't even the story. It's like a movie teaser before the movie. This is that trailer that they show when you're settling down with your popcorn and your your Coke. This is the part of the story that gets us ready for what God is doing, that we might be a glimpse of what God wants to do with all the people in all the world. Because among this story is a story that has been told generation after generation. It's been told by the people who were in exile a people who had messed up so that God said, I'm going to have you live by the consequences of your actions. And so they found themselves as strangers in a foreign land, sort of like those of you who are in college that moved down to North Carolina and are trying to figure out what you're doing down here. They were in exile, and God gave them these events for them to continue to tell to their friends and their family and their neighbors that they might know there is a God in Israel. For even after they had returned from exile and were back in Israel, they found themselves still under the thumb of foreign rulers. And some of those rulers, like a Syrian king, defiled their holy space, persecuted the people for their fidelity to the one God of Israel. And the very telling of that story of God's goodness got them in trouble But it also caught the attention because Syria was the sworn enemy of Israel. And so 
it was a captivated the imagination of a general of, of Israel's enemy in the army of Israel's enemy. And he is the one here described as having a problem. That's the way the best stories work. A protagonist, a problem, and a plot. And so the general seeks help. A referral is made by one of the lowest in the so-called staff, a young girl held in captivity, employed in his home. And so the story begins with something of a scandal, and a Syrian seeks an Israelite for help. Such is the reality of desperate situations. The general will not present himself as a charity case. He knows who he is, or at least he thinks he does. He will bring all his charge cards with him, his best suits, and a letter on the king's stationery written on his behalf. When the general gets there, he wants everybody to know he's important. He's better than everybody else, and so he must be treated as such. But in his attention to the rules of the games of politics and protocol, he misses that this was not a task for the king. This was a task for Israel's God. So the wise general foolishly approaches the king. Now this is when the awkwardness shifts. The king of Israel, in a passionate display of emotion, tears his own clothes and makes an erroneous assumption that this is a trap. Why in the world would Matt let somebody from Duke come and speak to us on Sunday morning? If we worry like that, you recognize that the king suddenly was irrational because he was thinking in the terms of the world, seeing this must be a setup. Something must be uh, to get him to mess up, to start a war, to start a fight, to start a quarrel. So he is so attentive to the political situation that the king misses the opportunity that this seeker is to meet his God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. But this is not where the story ends, for the king has no power to heal. That's true. So the narrator tells an intriguing story on the heels of this great political power brokering. Both kings and a general are mutually impressed with each other. And yet none of it matters so much as anything at all in the story of God. The reality of desperate situations brings the general around to the house call he needs. Not one where the doctor comes to him. He's already crossed the state to seek medical care. Still, with great expectations, the general is disappointed again as he finds out his HMO won't get him a face-to-face evaluation with the clinician. A mere LPN meets him in what appears to be an over-the-counter prescription. The general wants to be the center of the story. He wants drama, or at least something scientific or high-tech. And all he gets is a river washing, like a needy Anglican receiving a lowbrow Baptist remedy. Now, the passion is not the king's, but the general's. Self-pity, indignation. And when you reach such low levels, maybe then you will listen to the lowest of your servants. So hear the wisdom. Here is your sworn enemy. He could have told you to do anything because you're the desperate one. You're the one asking for his help. And all he says is go wash in a river? I mean, really? Is that so bad? The general thinks about it and concedes. And so he washes. And a Syrian doxology is written to the God of Israel. Now I know 
that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Healed. He recognizes the identity of a great God. And so we keep telling the story. Not the stories of Elisha, the great prophet that he was. His reputation was as great as the general's. And had the general understood that, maybe he would not have wanted to dominate the story. But Elijah is willing to take a back seat if God is able to get the glory. These are the stories of the prophets. These are the trailers that have been left to us that we might know how to be witnesses to a great God. True witnesses to the activities that God is willing to point out that there is more healing in baptism than in blue pills. More hope in the coming reign of God than in a new administration. More promise of peace among the faithful who finish the race than the prideful who display their dependence on 401ks. Such are the stories told about the ones who bore witness to the ways of the great God of heaven. If I say to you some things your grandparents remember, you'll know what story we live in called America. Older folks like to ask, where were you when JFK was shot? Your generation will always ask, where were you on September 11th? You know what I'm talking about? That sense of a one line that draws you into a whole event that shaped the world. You can't understand this moment unless you know my backstory. Well, we tell stories. We keep them alive so that we can remember our identity. Our identities have been stolen. We've been marked as broken, as no good, as missing something. The world loves to tell us that we are not who God has made us to be. We've been shaped by the world's stories. Let me see if I can give you an example. Knock, knock. You've been... See, you've been shaped by the American story because this is nothing holy about that little knock-knock joke and you guys jumped right in. I got you. Because we have been shaped by the world story and therefore have forgotten that the game is on. The ancient people of God had their imagination shaped by knowing that God intrudes, that God interferes, that God interrupts. No matter who the enemy is, God will use us if we are willing to take a back seat and let God get the glory out of our lives. That's exactly what Jesus did. His reputation preceded him. He heals. He has authority over evil. He teaches with influence unheard of in and out of the synagogue. He proclaims that God is up to something here and now. It's not only his words that speak the presence of God in the emphasis of his day-to-day existence. It's everything that Jesus does, everywhere that he goes. I mean, what do you say when someone decides that they're going to go for a walk on the water? You say, God must be up to something. What do you say when someone plays in the dirt and spits and puts that mud on someone's eyes and they can see? You say, God must be up to something. What do you say when somebody takes sardines and crackers from a little boy's lousy lunch and opens up a Long John Silver's chain on the lakeshore? God must be up to something. Jesus doesn't need a blessed handkerchief or a text message or to text message a prayer around the world world on Twitter. Jesus risks his own health to help a leper. Jesus ensures that they would become ritually clean by touching an unnamed leper. But this is not the challenge of the story because Jesus confronts more than a virus here. 
with deep grieving and a passion similar to the rending of the clothes of the king, Jesus has pity on the sick and he shows his anger with the system. The compassion that Jesus offers is not a passing holiday emotion. This is an opportunity for us to see that wherever we are, how far we've gone, how far we've fallen, how deep that dark pit, how lowly the space, how lonely we feel, God is already there. And Jesus shows up to touch us when no one else will touch us, to call our name when no one remembers who we are, to remind us that we've been written back into the story of God. The world likes to tell us we're not good enough. The world likes to tell us we're untouchable. The world likes to tell us we've messed up. Not unlike we heard the stories of Whitney Houston when she died. We heard the stories of how great she was and we continue to hear the stories of her fall. And I admit yesterday I glimpsed portions of that incredibly long service of memorial that they did for her. That was a long service. But as I watched it, I was moved because what was remembered was that in spite of her fall, she believed in the Father God. What about you at your lowest moments? What about you when you're hanging out where nobody knows you hang out? What about you when you've not received the news you want? When you weren't treated with the control you thought you could exercise? When someone called you out of your name? Behind all of your falling down and scraping your knees, have you been able to say, but I still trust that God has my back, that I still know whose I am and therefore who I am? When the world tells you you are a dirtbag, you tell the world, come to think of it, yeah, I am. You see, there's this great God in heaven He flung the stars up in the sky, told the moon where to hide until evening, told the waters how close they could come up on the shore, pushed out the mountains, stepped out the valleys, and then leaned over and played in some dirt and then created you, me, and gave us a birthmark, facsimile of holiness, made in the divine image mine. That's God speaking. And God looked at you and said, you're good and you're good. And all you are is dirt that's had a little divinity donated to it. God has called you his own. God has said, I don't care how not good the world tells you you are. I'm telling you, you're very good. You're mine. And I want to get my glory out of your life. I've stamped you as a holy facsimile. Are you willing to bear the image of God? I don't know how far you've fallen. I don't care. God knows your zip code. He knows where you hide out on the weekends. And he knows where you get puffed up on the weekdays. And God loves you. And more of all, God has decided to use you. Everyone under the sound of my voice, God wants to get his glory out of your life. Just as the Syrian leader, the general, 
was able to write a doxology for how great is Israel's God, how great is his enemy's God. So God wants you to walk and talk in this world so that people will know how great is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. I said earlier, if the world is to be changed, then the church has to change. Well, I want to say to you, Love Chapel, just coming in this day, just seeing the makeup of this community, of who you are, and that you would gather here on a cold, rainy day to sit and listen to someone from the other side of town, tells me that you know you bear the image of a holy God. And it doesn't matter who I rooted for on that game where I didn't want to be uh, humble enough to walk out after that last couple of minutes and, and wear a, a U, UNC colors. I mean, that was, that was hard. I, I just wanted everybody to know. I wasn't even in town, and I was telling everybody that Duke won that game. Is there a back door? Can I get out of here? I wasn't supposed to say that. But, but, but the fact that we can worship God together, as Matt said in the introduction, the fact that we remember that God has called us to be not UNC or Duke fans, but to be fans of Christ. That God has written us back into the story we walked out of. That in our globally connected world, we tell a story that is the same story told in North Carolina and told in Northern Korea. That there is a place where there are people who call in the name of Jesus. And they may have to do it in a dark hole. Or they may be able to do it in a theater in downtown. But when they are done, the world will know there is a God. And that God has called us to be a glimpse of his glory. So that problem I talked about, of us not knowing our story, of us not remembering who we are, this is why we gather each week. We gather each week to remind ourselves who we are. Whose we are. What we know about God is not something science has observed. It's something God has revealed. And if you don't tell it, your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will not hear the story. So know who you are and whose you are. And in all your brokenness, in all your bandages, in all your pain, don't be like the general who was worried about having to go and do something he thought was ridiculous. You're being asked to do something ridiculous. Just let God get his glory out of your life. He wants to use you in a coffee shop, in a cafeteria, while you're wandering around Walmart on Wednesday. When someone sees you, do they see hope? Do they say promise that God has entered our broken world? Do they see the possibility that their ruined lives can be touched by the hand of the Savior? We are God's A plan for the world. When the world sees this, and then when we go out one by one outside of the doors of Varsity Theater, and the world sees you and me, They should wonder, what's that smile? Why do you stand tall? Why is there a gleam in your eye? And you can say, because I know who I am. I'm a dirtbag who's been devoted, donated some dignity from God. 
I'm the one who's been healed. And I'm here to give you an over-the-counter prescription. God loves you. God has never given up on you. And God has your back. You're healed. Go and heal another. Amen. stand together.